This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Ingress, number one in its field. My special guest is Bernadette Cooper, former jockey and now a very popular member of the Sky Racing team. Well, you had your share of race falls, as most jockeys do, but one of them was an absolute shocker. You were one of five horses to come down in the middle stages of a race at Eagle Farm, and I think you finished up underneath a horse, didn't you, on that occasion? I did. I did, yeah. I just got shaved, I think, from the outside and, and clipped some heels, and, yeah, I went up the, the I actually think I'd had one, one, maybe one fall prior to that. Mm. Um, yeah, so I knew I was running about fifth, so and I knew I'm pretty sure it was sixteen or eighteen runners. So, I, and I was conscious actually the whole time through that fall, which isn't uncommon, I suppose. And I just remember thinking I needed to protect my head. Mm. Um, so I sort of had my arms around my head, but. And it, it was almost, it felt like it went on for days, but of course it's all over in a split second. But I can remember seeing horses sort of flying over the over the top of me and, and cartwheeling and then it all seemed just like blissfully peaceful, like everything had stopped. And I thought, oh, outstanding, I've, mm. I've survived. And then I realised the horse was actually lying on my chest mm. and with just my head sticking out. Yeah, and then obviously it got up. And I realised I couldn't breathe very well. So just I don't know how it ended up on me, but whether it just – I'm assuming it just rolled onto me. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, I had like a busted lung and, and a few broken ribs and a broken shoulder, a mm. scapula. Um, oh, yeah, pretty impressive injury list. Yeah, yeah. Actually, Doug Messingham, he walked away that day, but he ended up with a – they didn't realise he had a broken neck. I don't think he actually ever rode again. After that, mm. poor old Doug. But um, yeah, th- at the time it seemed like I had the worst injuries. But yeah, anyway, off the hospital you go, and of course you say to the Ambo, "Am I going to die?" <laughs> <laughs> and you want to bliss, you want to straight out, "No, you're going to be fine." And he goes, oh, yeah, I, "I, I, don't think so." And I was just like, "Oh, catastrophizing then." But mm. Mm, then you get to hospital and it's like mayhem. But um, they were great, yeah, and, and but obviously it's a. Uh, a big shock. I mean, I was only 17 or 18, I think, mm. when that fall happened. And, yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was a you, shock, but you want to get back out there. Yeah, well, youth's a wonderful thing, Bernie, and you yeah. were quickly on the road to recovery. You just brushed it off and got back into business as quickly as you could. You know, around the year 2000, Paul Sutherland decided to give Sydney another crack. He'd had so much success here a few years previously, uh, that he thought he could uh, he could come back with a useful team of horses and get back into it. And he did to some degree. He returned to Rose Hill where he was able to secure accommodation for his horses and himself, and you came with him as stable jockey. Yeah, that's right. Well, he, he first of all set up and then um, he rang me one day and I was actually – having another one of those low periods where you couldn't get a ride, basically. Mm. <laughs> My career was certainly peaks and troughs. It never never flatlined and rode, rode along nicely. It was either up or it was down. Mm. So I was um, – I actually had another business at that time selling um, jockey's gear. So I was kind of busy with that, but I really was struggling to get a ride here in Brisbane at that stage. And he, he rang me up one day and he said, um, will you come down to Newcastle to ride – 
a horse for him in a maiden. And I said, okay. So I went down. It ran a place. It wasn't much good. But he said, oh, why, why don't you come down and ride in Sydney? I said, are you crazy? I can't even get a ride at Kilcoy at the moment. How am I going to get a, a ride in Sydney? So um, he said, oh, we'll just give it a go. So I did. I, I came down to Sydney and I was actually only there about three months and it was going okay. It wasn't brilliant. Um, and then I said to Paul, oh, I think I'll I think I'll go home. So I actually came home to Brisbane and I was home about four weeks and I just thought, no, I have to give this another crack. So mm. yeah, I came back again and it just took off, which was outstanding. But I just only at the provincials, obviously, to begin with. And Paul had a lot of poor stock at that time as well that he was sort of mm. you know, threading through and, and trying to get new horses and getting, you know, out with the old and in with the new style. Mm. Yeah. But it- Things started to rock along at the provincials. And he had started. one. He had a handy horse called the Man. I remember you won several races mm. on him. I think you won a Group Three on the horse at Randwick. Yeah, yeah, he did. Um, the JRA plate. So he was probably the best horse that Paul had. Oh, he had a couple of others. I think, he, but he would have been one of the best ones that he had in that short time that he trained back in Sydney. But, mm. yeah, magnificent horse, beautiful horse actually. Mm. And, yeah, had a lot of wins on him and that was that was outstanding because that was my first group three race. Mm. Um, I think I'd only won a few listed races prior to that. So mm. it was like I didn't care that it was group three, Johnny. It was like group one for me oh, that of day. Course. <laughs> you know, the late Guy Walter was a good judge of jockeys always, and he recognised your talents, and he put you on a filly called Floria in the yeah. Keith Nolan Classic at Kembla Grange, and up you bobbed. What a thrill to ride a winner for the great Guy Walter. Oh, gosh, yes. I just love riding track work for Guy Walter. Like, he was just so interesting and just so different from many others, I guess, and his depth of understanding of his horses. And he just, you know, got right into the sort of emotion of the horse. And, yeah, he was different and he was interesting. So, yeah, riding track work was great, but I also read a lot of winners. And, yeah, another group three winner for, for Guy. And, mm. um, yeah, big thrill because you're right, he was unmistakably sort of recognised as, a great horseman, be a great trainer and a great judge. So yeah. through, he left you on Floria, Bernie, in a Group One. Yeah. After that Kembla win, you also rode her in the Arrowfield Stakes, and yes. she obviously ran a good race. You were only beaten one point three lengths into fifth spot, and a New Zealander won that race uh, called Sixty Seconds. Brian York was the rider. Yes. Yeah, that's right. She was probably just sort of a length or two shy of being very, very good, but um, mm. she was still very handy. And, yeah, that's right. I, I rode, yeah, he, he was happy enough to put me on those group ones as well. So, yeah, mm. it was a big thrill. Gary Portelli uh, gave you quite a few rides on a filly called Okanui. You mm-hmm. won four straight on this chestnut filly at one stage, culminating in a listed at, uh, might have been at Canterbury this particular year, the Triskay Stakes. Yeah, that's right. Okanui was a fantastic little mare to me and lots of wins and um, oh, that particular, I think it was the Triskay Stakes where I think Darren Beadman had drawn inside me and I think I might have sworn <laughs> mm. at him because I wanted to cross. He was sort of like not there but there but not there. And I remember I 
Oh. Yeah, and he, he thought you were a lady. He must have been disillusioned. Yeah, when he came in, he said, I've never heard that kind of language. And I said, well, I'm not not speaking English. I'm thinking, well, what did the boys say to you? I'm pretty sure they didn't say, excuse me, Darren. You know, <laughs> dare I say I'd like to take that rails run, thank you. Mm. Yeah, so that was funny. You wrote a filly <laughs> called Gentle Genius. In, mm. in two barrier trials and two races for the late Tony Wildman. Now, she started at $201 in the 2002 Coolmore Classic and you almost caused a boil over when you got very close to Sunline. Now, tell me about the race. How well do you remember it? You were midfield to the home turn. What happened yeah. then? Well, to begin with, actually, Johnny, I thought I hadn't raced against Sunline, so I, I knew my horse was 251, and I'd drawn 15 or 16 as well, and Sunline had drawn one. So I thought, pre-race, I thought, I'll follow her to the barriers mm. and I'll walk around, I'll stalk her behind the barriers because that's probably the closest I'm ever going to get to Sunline. <laughs> you know, she was like, I know, you know, at the time she was like the Winx, right? So um, even though she didn't have that, unbeaten sort of street like Winx has got. She was still the superstar of, the, of that day. So mm. so I did. I stalked her all the way to barriers. I stalked her child everywhere he went. Um, I'm sure if there was footage behind the barriers, you would see me just like glued to her, looking at her. Mm. Um, and I never saw her pr during the race at all until I arrived at about the furlong. And <clears throat> I got to a girth and I thought, wow, this is outstanding. Got to a shoulder and I got all excited. <laughs> I yeah, thought, yeah. Am I actually going to catch Sunline? Yeah, and then Sunline, as she did in true Sunline style, she just found a little bit extra and, you know, the margin was, I think, a short neck in the end. But there was that fleeting moment where I thought General Genius is, is actually going to get over the top of Sunline at 250 to 1, yeah. Mm, well, you'll be a grandmother one day, uh, Bernie. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been something to tell your grandchildren? Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? It definitely would have been. Anyway, it wasn't meant to be, Johnny. You rode her again in the Group 2 Emancipation Stakes. She ran fourth on that occasion. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, she she was just, you know, just below probably that level. I, got, I, didn't, I think Jimmy might have won a, a group race on her at Mooney Valley mm. perhaps after that as well. So, you know, she was just a, a very good mare um, and probably just, just shy of that Group 1, obviously. Mm. But... I suppose if Sunline hadn't been in the Cornwall that year, you know, she probably wins one. Yes, yeah. Mm. Well, you decided on a move to Macau in the latter part of your riding career, organised by John Shrek, mm. and you started off with a bang. You rode 26 or 27 winners in no time at all. Then it all went belly up. Yeah, it certainly did. Um yeah, I was actually just thrilled to to because I actually was contemplating retirement prior to going there, so mm. I had sort of nothing to lose, and you know I was happy just to sort of run everything out. So you're right, it started off fantastically well, um, and then I I can't remember the trainer's name, but I I got a ride on this horse, and I was always nervous from when he he sort of indicated that it needed to go all the race on one leg and I thought oh 
we're in some trouble here. And the mm. worst thing happened was that it actually won. And it didn't go all the race on one leg, but he thought it did. Mm. And <laughs> um, I rode at track work the next week and I said, oh, it's no good. It lops up, we used to say. That meant it was crappy. Mm. I said, this horse lops up. <laughs> no, no, he said, I fix, I fix. And it came out on the grass the next week and, yeah, it broke its leg at the winning post. And I had the shits because, you know, I didn't want to ride it in the first place. And so I actually pulled the pin on the rest of the meeting, even though I didn't have any major injuries, but I just, you know, had the shits basically, mm. I think. And I didn't realise they had a rule that if you pull the pin on one meeting, you can't ride the next meeting. So I actually missed a group one winner at the next meeting because I wasn't allowed to ride. And so I sat at home with nothing wrong with me. So mm. that'll teach me for getting shits. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> was a very costly, shitty attitude probably. Um, but then, uh, yeah, so then that might have been, I think I only rode for a, a few more weeks. And mm. getting rides in Macau was insane because even though emails were around, everybody cluttered around the, the secretary's office around this photocopier. It was really mm. quite archaic. Mm. Um, and I, anyway, this day I got put on this horse for this trainer that I, I never rode for, mm. didn't really want to ride for, and you sort of got forced into your name going on them sometimes. So um, I had a meeting with a friend of mine the day before the races because he was pretty familiar with all the horses, and he said to me, oh, it's got three legs. Oh. I said, oh, yeah, it's just my belly just sank because, you know, I was riding track work there all the time and there were lots with three legs. And as a horse lover, that was a battle. That was a real battle in Macau because it's just it's just not very nice for them there. Um, so <clears throat> I thought I'll just get it scratched at the barriers. So I counted it round to the barriers. Um, it actually didn't feel that bad in, in full canter, um, but when I got to the barriers and I trotted it, it was it was uh, lame. So I said, oh, this uh, I want this scratch, you know, I want this scratch. It's lame, it's lame. And the, the vet, who was an Australian vet, I can't remember his name, but he said trot it up. Mm. So I trotted it up. He said, it's always like that, put it in. So then I'm in the barriers and I'm thinking, oh, my God, Johnny said this horse has got three legs and it's lame. And I mm. thought I'll just stay out three wide. Mm which I did, and at the half mile, it just went off like a gun. So it just it just snapped its um, – well, the bottom of its cannon bone really above the joint. Mm. Yeah. So I surmise it must have had some kind of fracture there already. Mm. So, Byrne, you did something that yeah. is extremely difficult to do. It's a lot harder to get off a horse than it is yep. to get on one at mm. the gallop. Mm. You bailed exactly. out. I did, I did, because its hoof was looking back up at me and I thought um, I'm, I either go down with this horse's head or I have to jump off. And I'd purposely stayed three wide, so I knew nothing was outside of me. So I just, like, pole vaulted off the back of the horse mm -hmm. and um, – Landed yeah, awkwardly. I, yeah, I sort of landed on my bottom really, but in because of the speed I was going at, it, it bent my back over mm -hmm. too far and so it, it – cracked fractured the t12 in my back mm. yeah which was excruciating what about the arm though yeah my arm was an s bend because i'd obviously put my wrist out to try and break my fall but mm. i to this day i don't ever remember any pain i remember looking at it and thinking oh my god because it, it really was in an s bend shape but i actually to this day can never can, can't remember any pain at all in that wrist because of the excruciating pain in my back, yeah. Well, you finished up 
in hospital in Hong Kong. I think they took you across by ferry. Yes. And, and so you were I, pleased to get there because you hadn't had much uh, satisfaction in Macau. I'd had Dr. Death in Macau. So um, Lynn Troy, Harry Troy's wife, came with me to the hospital. She met me at the hospital, actually. So, mm-hmm. um, And I was still bellowing like a cow. And, and you know how they strap you when you've got a back injury to those mm. sort of flat bed things. Yep. And I had this doctor that left me there for four hours. So she, both she, Lynn, and I would beg him to give me some kind of painkiller and he gave me nothing for four hours. And then after four hours, mm-hmm. he'd come in the room, I'd beg, he'd leave, I'd swear, he'd come in, I'd beg. It was just it was pretty sick, really. Um, and then he said he was going to operate. So my friend that had told me that the horse had three legs arrived after the races and and grabbed him by the throat. It was so funny mm. and said, if you don't give her some painkillers, at the time he said, I'm going to fill your hospital with patients, but it was just a threat, obviously. And, yeah, he gave me some morphine. So in that short period when I got the morphine, I got approval to leave Macau Hospital and go to Hong Kong because we had to get the jockey club's approval. Mm. And there's this mob you can ring and they're just called SOS and they'll come anywhere in the world and get you in the jungle, wherever. Mm. And they arrive in just like in the movies with the SOS jumpsuits on. they got backpacks full of drugs. They say, do you have any pain? Yes, here, here's some painkiller. And they took me on a $40 ferry ride. That's what it used to cost to get from Macau to Hong Kong. So it cost me 8000 American dollars for these two people to take me on a $40 ferry ride. But they delivered me at this fantastic hospital in um, in Hong Kong. Mm. And this, I was, they uh, uh, the doctor waked me up when I got there and this lovely face was sort of looking at me and he said, hi, Bernie, um, my name's Dr. Chang. I've had a look at your x-rays. I'm not going to operate on your back, but I'm going to take you into theatre now and operate on your arm. Mm. And I was so relieved to hear that he wasn't going to operate on my back. But the name just stuck in my head. I said, Chang is in Victor Chang. He said, yes, that's my brother. Mm. So it was, yeah, the heart surgeon's brother, Julian Chang, he's actually the – Oh, top surgeon in Hong Kong and he does all the Olympics and that sort of thing. So mm. he was beautiful, yeah, and he looked after me. A brother to the iconic Dr. Yeah. Victor Chang. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, so he took me into theatre and, and pinned my arm and that was it, yeah. You stayed in Macau and as mm-hmm. you told me the other day, you spent nine months on the couch. How boring. <laughs> Well, I had a dog. I just got a dog as well. So I had this poodle. The poodle and I spent nine months. It was boring, but it wasn't because, yeah, I don't think I'd really ever had a break um, because I started work when I was 15 and I'd just gone all the way through. So I knew every Foxtel channel, every show for the next 10 years when I would, even when I came home to Australia and I'd watch Foxtel, I'd think, I've seen that, I've seen that, I've seen that. Watched every <laughs> every Sex in the City series, every Seinfeld series, every, yeah, yeah so many. It was great. <laughs> well, your troubles were not over. You made it back to the races and it's your very first night back. It was a night yeah. meeting at a place called Taper and what a mixed bag you had. First ride back and you got absolutely poleaxed in the race. Yeah, that's right. So I think it was a local jockey jumped out of 14 and just went straight to the fence. That's another thing over there. It was like Kamikaze City. Like there was like nobody policing anything. The stewards were just like puppets and it, 
you know, people got time and they didn't deserve it and the ones that were doing the flattening didn't get time. Anyway, this guy jumped out of 14 and was ruthless. He just went straight across the face of the field and the two horses inside me just went through the fence. Mm. I didn't, but you can imagine. I've just had nine months off. Mm. Oh, terrible. <laughs> can you imagine? I was just livid. I was so angry. I just thought, these guys are lunatics. So I charged in off the horse and I stood in the doorway and I just roared, who's policing this joint anyway? Oh, the the flaming red hair came out again. Yeah, I was just so angry and they just roared back at me. Well, they got square later in the night, Bernie. You did ride three winners that night though. You got poleaxed in the first. Mm. You then rode a treble and then comes the last race and you're on a horse called Secret Star. And yep. this is the one that triggered your decision to quit riding. To your total disbelief, mm-hmm. they hauled you in and accused you of pulling it up. Yes. Well, actually, they they did, but they didn't charge me on that horse. So the, the funny thing is, that steward, he wouldn't have it. It actually went straight again, straight ahead at the first corner was what it drew one and it went straight and he tried to that our argument. His argument was that if they draw one they can't run they can't run off the turn, which of course is ludicrous. Um, but so that they, they actually didn't charge me because I think it would have been too obvious. So they actually waited till the next meeting, the Sam meeting, when I was on this three hundred to one pop that mm. ran fifth in the third it was the closest it had ever finished in the thirteen hundred. Mm. And they charged me with not taking a run that was I was never gonna get to anyway. Like I was just always gonna run fifth. Um yeah, and they fined me 30000 but that was a square up for Green Apple. Mm. And then they uh, they they gave me 14 meetings, which actually took me to the end of my contract. Yep. So that was going to be it, yeah. So you came back to Australia and we've covered the ground from that point yeah. on. You worked at the Star, you worked at the Treasury Casino. And I had you- a gap year in between. <laughs> yeah. I, w- I went and lived on Lama Island for 12 months, which was – um, brilliant, actually. So yeah, I, I just went and lived there. With, that was an island off Hong Kong, and there's no cars there. You have to walk everywhere, and mm. I just learnt to live like a normal person. Yeah, it was great. Mm, a transition period. Yeah, totally, totally. The 2019 English Australian Easter Yearling Sale was the second best ever conducted. Well over $122 million was traded over two days with 19 lots realising a million or more. 75 lots sold for $500,000 or more, up from 72 last year. Seven stallions recorded the highest ever individual sale price, including Schnitzel 2.8 million, Exceed and Excel 1.7 million, Lonro 1.4 million, Brazen Bow 1.1. The day one trade of almost 64 million was a Southern Hemisphere record for an individual day's yearling sale turnover. It was a huge two days at beautiful Riverside in front of an energetic buying bench from all corners of the globe. Well, the rest is history. The light Mm. of your life is your 11-year-old daughter, Stella, who shows absolutely no interest in riding horses, but she does want to pursue a career as a dancer. What's she doing, jazz, tap, ballet or the lot? Ballet, ballet. She's done Mm. them all. 
Yep. She's done them all. She did start off as a rider, but that's probably just because I taught taught her to ride at four. So she rode for five years, mm. and she was a beautiful rider. She was a beautiful rider. And then at ten, she started going. She'd done ballet as a little girl, and then she went back to ballet as a ten-year-old. And mm. the funny thing was, talk about um, ironic. She, when she was ten, she went back to ballet, and she'd only been back a few weeks. And she looked at me one day, and she said, "Mummy," she said. I'm sure I was born to dance. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> Did and she? I thought, she looked at me and said it. And I'm like, the hairs on my arms just stood up because when I was 10, I said to my mother, Mum, I was born to ride. So it was like this affirmation all over again. And I said, you know, inside of me, part, a little part was sad, but but the majority of me was just happy and I said, Stella, I don't care what you do as long as you love what you're doing. Mm. And she's now become so obsessed with ballet. She's like with ballet, exactly how I was with horses. It's it's beautiful and she's driven and she's focused and she does six or seven classes a week and she's like going ahead in leaps and bounds. So it's, mm. it's, it's And it's easy, let's face it, it's easier to watch her do ballet than it is ride a horse. I'm sure Dame Margot Fontaine would have uttered the same words to her mum. Absolutely. I'm sure. I'm sure. Now, that head of red hair of yours, which has changed once or twice in recent uh, history, but it was resplendent when you started race riding and Burnett became a trademark and you must have realised that. Yeah, and it, you know, like every redhead, it sort of suits its temperament, doesn't it? You're either red or you're not. <laughs> I'm very red. Uh, but I'm sort of learnt to tame it down. I think a lot of my sort of temper or temperament, you know, it did aid me in that it was a tough industry as a very young girl to, to be involved in and it's sort of – I think it made me resilient and and sometimes I get um, strength from anger, you know, spur you on to do something better or, yeah, be better at something. So I feel like it was my attribute but I also felt that it had to be tamed. <laughs> so Burn. I tamed tame the temperament and the hair. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's almost 30 years since your writing career commenced. Mm-hmm. Uh the number of female jockeys riding around the nation today is staggering. Uh, yep. Look up the results of any race meeting, particularly in the country regions, the northern rivers, the western districts. It's not uncommon for 80 or 90% of the field to be made up by female jockeys. They've come such a long way since the days of the pioneers, Pam O'Neill in particular, mm. and uh, and you started a long time ago, almost three decades. <laughs> I know. Talk about feel old, Johnny. Um, but it is. And you know what? It's a movement that everyone knew was happening. Um, it's been slow but steady. And now it's probably to the point where it's sped up a little bit because the number of intakes into those apprentice schools now is obviously probably females would take up a greater majority. I know in Queensland they certainly do, so I'm presuming around the country it sort of falls into that way. And now we're seeing sort of the latest, as you say, really star in the big races. I mean, country areas were burgeoning places for for female jockeys, but there was always that sort of disparity when you got to your group races. I mean, pretty much 
everything I ever rode in a group race was 200 to 1, you know, whereas now we see, you know, you know, your Jamie Cars or your Cathy Harris or Linda, um, Linda ride horses that actually have chances, Michelle Payne, you know, like they're actually on chances now in these big races. So um, I think it's fair to say that that, that table will turn even more as we carry on to, into the next two and three decades of racing. So, you know, it may even be that it turns, you know, vastly in favour of the female jockeys eventually. Hmm. Well, Bernadette, you left your mark as a jockey with almost 600 winners and your media career has only just begun. You're a very polished performer and your work is appreciated by thousands of sky racing viewers around Australia and I'm one of them. Keep up the good work. (laughs) Thanks, Johnny. I appreciate it. And I think the best thing about working in racing is you know when you go to work, you've got something in common with every single person on that racetrack, whereas when I worked at the casino, it might only be a few people I had something in common with. So <laughs> that's what I that's what I get my, my passion from. So I know I can go to the races and chat to people, and even if, you know, you're not best friends, you've still got something in common. So very, very lucky, Johnny. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me on the podcast, and this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. The focus of Thoroughbred Breeders will now centre on the English Chairman's Sale and the Australian Broodmare and Weanling Sale to be held at Riverside from May the 2nd. A magnificent collection of top-class mares will be offered. Group 1 winner Aloysia, dual Group 1 winners for Candy in full to American Pharaoh, Santa Ana Lane's Dam, Fast Fleet in full to Zoo Star, Inca Lagoon, Dam of Hong Kong champion I Victory in Fold to Sebring. Group 2 winning mare Snitty Kitty. Norzita, champion three year old filly of her generation in Fold to Schnitzel. Pasadena Girl, Savabeel's only Group 1 winning two year old filly in Fold to Sebring. Fiesta's Dam, now now in Fold to Piero. Noondi, the Dam of Booker in Fold to Ritten Tycoon. Dash off the dam of Sprite, in foal to I am invincible. Apology not accepted, the only mare in foal to Medagliadoro to be offered this year. So serene, a winning exceed and excel mare, in foal to Sebring. Netoya, a daughter of Sebring, being offered as a racing and breeding prospect. 53 lots and a few wild cards will be offered at the boutique sale commencing at 6.30 Friday, May 3rd at Riverside Stables.